0: Amen. Well, you guys can go ahead and have a seat. Thanks so much for worshiping with us. Again, if you're joining online or here at our downtown venue, thanks for being with us. I'm Matthew. I'm one of the pastors here at H2O, and I wanted to start by just sharing a story that connects with what we're going to be talking about today. So uh, uh, years back, uh, I was a brand new staffer here with H2O Church. I went on staff right after I graduated college, and uh, I got involved actually in the church Sort of late. I wasn't, uh, I was a senior in college when I got involved with the church. Um, But then I felt like the Lord was leading me to go on staff. And so I did that. I didn't know a lot of the people who worked for the church. Um, I knew a few, but not a lot because I got involved so late. And one of the very first things that I remember doing after raising my support and coming on staff with the church was joining an intramural staff basketball team um, with a bunch of the guys who worked for H2O. And I did not know our pastor at that time, Matt Pardee, who is still a pastor here, um, and we love Matt, and and I had not had many conversations with him. And so I was intimidated by him a little bit, Um, but I was on this intramural team and I was like, this is going to be a great way for me to get to know him and get to know the other staff guys and have some fun. And then I found out that someone, I don't know who, put us in the competitive league and we should not have been in the competitive league But somehow we were there, so we were playing against these people that were way better than us, and I'm a competitive person, and there was this one game where we were actually, like, hanging in there against a team that should have been destroying us. But somehow, and I I will say this, our staff men are actually surprisingly good at basketball. Um, you know, you might be shocked to hear that, but we are. Um, and so we were, we were in it, and I was getting a little bit intense, a little bit fired up, and I started saying some things to the ref. Um, yelling a little bit and like contesting the bad calls that he was making because of course they were bad calls right Um, and so at one point I, I remember this clear as day Matt Pardee again who I don't know all that well and he's my boss pulls me aside it was like an out of bounds thing a dead ball situation and he's just like can you come over here real quick and he just looks at me. I, I wish I could remember exactly what he said, but it was something like, hey, stop that. <laughs> Knock that off. You're being a bad witness. Like, these people know that we're with the church. You cannot act that way. But he did it in this really loving way, at this great tone of voice, and it was like this tender moment. He had his arm around me, and he was just like destroying me on the inside, <laughs> but in the most loving way. And I just wanted to like go into a corner and, and like, curl up in the fetal position and weep, um, but I had to keep playing the game, which we ended up losing. Um, Probably because I was yelling at the refs. Um, But, and I think about that, what hit me in that moment as he was talking to me is I'm not just being a bad witness, which he pointed out. And I was, I was definitely not representing Jesus the best way I could and how I was acting. But more than that, I was doing the very thing that I had told other people not to do. It was common for me to kind of make fun of and call out these friends of mine, these guys that would go to the rec, and it was like they're trying to relive the glory days. They were third team, all district in basketball, and they just wanted to go and, like, dominate on the courts. And I would always be like, you guys are just way too into this. You need to stop. There's something bigger in life than your intramural sports prowess. So just stop. Um, and the, I was doing that very thing I was getting way too into it Caring way too much And it was affecting how I was acting So it wasn't just that I was being unwise and foolish And not representing Jesus But is that I was actually being a hypocrite And doing the very thing that I had told people before Not to do And I wonder have you ever had a moment like that Where like the weight of your own hypocrisy hits you And you're like oh <laughs> wow yep I'm being a hypocrite right now. And so my question for us, I usually start my teachings with just a big question. So here's the big question. How do we not become hypocrites? I think about the world and the way that people see us as Christians. One of the very first things that comes out of the mouth of young people, especially when they're asked to describe, you know, a Christian or the church, hypocritical, right? So common. And think about, you know, even the world that we live in and what's happening right now, the heaviness, the weight. We have an opportunity as a church to to show a different way, to, to be set apart, to be different. You know, we're in this series that we're calling Be the Church, and really what we're doing is we're just leaning into what we sense God is doing. We sense from the Lord that this whole thing this, started with COVID and it's become so many other things that what's happening right now is there's this beautiful opportunity for the church to be the church, to be the people that Jesus imagined and prayed for, to be set apart, to bring hope and healing to our world. That's, we're leaning into that. So it's funny that, you know, we're starting to regather and be together in person a little bit, those who are able and comfortable to do that, but that's not what we want to talk about. We don't want to talk about being like together, going to church. We want to talk about being the church outside of the walls um, of this building or your home. And so again, we're looking at these one another passages. There's this Greek word alelon, which just means one another. It appears 50, 60 times in the New Testament, and they all challenge us to live in community, to be the church. And so when you hear this idea of be the church, you might think like, oh great, this is going to be an easy teaching series. Your mind goes to like, you know, this is going to be fun. We're going to all hold hands in a circle and it's going to be warm and fuzzy on the inside. This is going to be an easy sermon series. And I would say if that's what you think, then you're not properly understanding the one another's. Because what they do is fundamentally challenge so much about the way that we live, so much about what is normal and sort of just the way our world works. Put it this way, the one another passages expose our cheap view of discipleship. And again, I say our, I I hope, I pray to God, it's not H2O churches, Um, that that's that's not what I mean when I say our, I don't want to like lay that claim upon you, but in our world, Somehow we've gotten to this place where being a Christian is defined by our ability to recite a few biblical truths and maybe tell a story of how we came to know Jesus 5, 10, 15, 20 plus years ago. And those are not bad things. We believe in conversion here. We believe in like biblical truth. But somehow we've defined just our ability to recite, to say, to articulate those things, that that's what it means to be a Christian. And it falls so tragically and terribly short of the New Testament vision of following Jesus. We've made it, we've fashioned a faith that makes anyone other than ourselves, anyone other than me, like entirely optional, like an added-on bonus, secondary, maybe just kind of on the periphery. It's about me and Jesus. I did my thing, I said my prayer, Jesus gave me his thing. We had this transaction, and now I'm good to go. I'm just writing it out. Everything that to do with how I relate to people, how I live in community, how I serve, that's just bonus. That's like if you want to do it kind of stuff. Again, tragically, tragically short of the New Testament vision. I Compare that, the way that we tend to view it today, with the Gospels. The way that Jesus turned the lives of his disciples upside down. Think about what he asked of them and what they did for him. They ended up starting the church, the capital C Church, formed these communities all over the ancient Near East that were radically committed to Jesus and to one another. And it has literally changed the face of the earth. So when I think back to what Matt Pardee my pastor back then, my co-pastor today, what he did for me on that day in the field house here at BGSU, I am incredibly grateful. I mean, it's been a lot of years since then, and I'm still telling the story. I'm grateful because he did not leave me in my immaturity. He didn't leave me in my foolishness and in my bad witness He called me, in this, like, literally, it was like a 20-second conversation. In this 20-second conversation, he called me to something difficult, but something so much better than what I was living. And what he did that day was admonish me. And I know that we don't often use that word, right? Like, if I polled you, I'm not sure any of you would say that you've used the word admonish in the last week. It's not a common word for us today. But that's what we're going to be studying the one another for today is admonish one another. It's what Matt did for me. It's what God has called all of us to do for one another. So if you want to start to turn there, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. Colossians 3, 12 through 16. This word for admonish one another, it appears multiple places throughout the New Testament. We're actually just going to camp out today in the Colossians passage. So we're going to be there for the entirety. Here's what it says, Colossians 3, verses 12 to 16. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. That was our topic last week, if you were here. Forgiving one another. And above all these, put on love. That was how we launched the series a few weeks back. Love one another. Which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. And here's our passage. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And we'll stop there. Beautiful, beautiful passage. This idea of putting on that Paul is using here, it literally is like the imagery of putting on clothing. Dressing yourself every day in the fruits of the Spirit, in the character and the image of Jesus. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. So, admonish is one of these Greek words that has a lot of meaning, a big range. It can mean to teach or instruct which is what's happening right now. In some way, I think what I'm doing is admonishing you. I think that's what's happening here. It can mean to teach or instruct, like for the sake of encouragement or building someone up. But it can also mean to warn or to challenge or to reprove, if you've ever heard of that word. It basically means to rattle someone's cage, to point out the error that's happening in their life. Literally in the Greek, admonish means to put into someone's mind. It's a combination of two words, right? So the the verb of putting in and then mind. So the concept is we are for one another helping put into the mind of a friend something that they weren't thinking about. On that basketball court that day, I was so blinded by my desire to pull the greatest upset in intramural basketball history that I wasn't thinking about the way I was representing Jesus, and Matt put that into my mind. Hey, you're kind of being an idiot right now. Oh, right, yes, I, I am, yep, thank you, that was bad. Um, so we're putting it into our minds. Again, can mean to teach or to, di- to discipline. And just to establish a baseline here, maybe this goes without saying, but we admonish one another because we are prone to wander. All of us, we drift, we get off course, we start compromising, we start getting idle. Right? Right? We hide. We hope no one asks us about this area of our life. We protect it. We start to worship our own comfort. We dabble in sin. And admonishment is one of the ways that God has given us in the church. It's this tool that he uses to help us resist that tendency. There is this massive pull in our flesh, in our world, to just go down this path of forgetting about God and doing it our own way. That is our natural, we will go that way. We will be tempted to go that way. And admonishment is a way to kind of keep us us away from that and chasing after the Lord. And I know it sounds like an intimidating word and one that we don't often use, but it really is simple. It's a simple thing. When we notice an area of compromise, an area of sin, if we see character in someone's life, someone that we know and love, that doesn't represent Jesus well, we lovingly and we privately call them out. We tell them that we think they're missing the mark. We offer them scripture. We don't condemn. We just give it to them as a gift. My wife, Tiffany, does this for me all the time. We do, we try, like to... Talk back on our day at the end of the night. We get our kids to bed, which nowadays is like 11 o'clock at night. Lord, have mercy. Pray for us. Um, We got to change that. And we just talk about our day. And she will point out moments where I spoke too harshly to one of our kids. Where I said I was going to do this thing and I didn't do it. I've had coworkers and co-pastors of mine look me in the eyes and say, the way that you treated that staffer, the way that you talked to them was condescending and was prideful. You need to go apologize. And I am so thankful that, that, that these friends of mine, that my wife is willing to speak hard truths to me. That's really what admonishment is. But before we go, we're going to dive into Colossians. Trust me, we're going to get there. I just want to plant this seed and get us thinking about this, kind of get our gears running. I think how we approach this whole topic of challenging each other and speaking truth, it says something about the way we view God. There's something much deeper happening here. Some of us, right, if we look at the spectrum, these are the extremes. You probably fall somewhere in the middle, but you probably tilt towards one, right? So some of us are like, well, Well, God is loving. God is kind. God is, you know, he's 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 full of mercy. His mercy knows no end. Why would I bring that to someone? That's not my, like, they're fine. The blood of Jesus covers them. It's good. Maybe really none of my business anyway. Or some of you are like, man, I cannot wait. I got the person in my mind. I know what I want to say to them. The preacher told me I could do it. And I'm just going to go light them up, knock them down a peg or two. The first group, if that's you, I suspect that's more of you, more common one, is love without truth. It's sentimentality. There's no truth in it. It seems loving, but it's actually ironically not. The second group is truth without love, which one author said is brutality. So one is sentimentality, the other is brutality. Now, think about, one step further, think about how we're viewing God, based on which camp we fall in. The first camp, God is soft on sin. But even more than that, God is disinterested with our lives. He doesn't care how we live. He must not. He's not doing anything. He's not changing us. He's not transforming us. He's not active in our lives. He's not making us into something different. He's just kind of distant and far off. Second position, right? God takes pleasure in punishment with this, which the scripture says explicitly he does not. So we're both missing it. Something is happening at a deeper level about even how we view God. i got to stop there. I'll come back to that later. Okay, so here's what I do. I want to hang out in the Colossians passage, and I want to point out six things. I know that sounds like a lot. I'm going to do them so fast it'll feel like the classic preacher three-point sermon. Okay, I'm going to go through them fast. And what I want to do is I want to explain what admonishment is, And kind of how it functions in the life of the church. Okay? So we're going to camp out in Colossians. The first thing, first of the six, admonishment starts with relationship. You cannot do this if you do not know a person and know their life well and have trust and respect. Okay? So, verse 13. In this amazing, gorgeous, beautiful passage talks about bearing one another's burdens. This essence of I'm not just living for myself, I'm not just, you know, concerned with my own troubles, my own difficulties, but I am bearing with one another. This friend of mine who's going through this thing, I am bearing that with him as if it were mine. Right? It all points to like really deep friendship. In verse 15. Paul talks about being called into one body, so he's saying, like, you were called into this church, this lowercase c, local church. You were called into this body, and it's not just about you, but it's about you living in relationship with other people. We have to know people first. To bear our burdens, which we're actually going to talk about, I think, next week in this series, is to live in deep friendship. It has to start there. Another thing to remember is that this, this gift, this practice of admonishment is meant for those of us in the church who call Jesus Christ Lord. One author I read said, for those without eyes, meaning like they don't see spiritually, they don't claim to follow Jesus and have the faith that we have. For those without eyes, we do not demand sight. But for those who see, we challenge them to walk well walk in a a manner worthy of the gospel, okay? So this is for us in the church, in love, in relationship, to call one another to a greater obedience to Jesus. This is not like, you know, okay, I won't say it, but I'll let you draw the conclusion on how that should influence your social media activity, okay? Number two, admonishment demands humility. The person who's offering it has to come humble, And the person who's receiving it has to receive it in humility. Verse 12, put on humility, put on meekness, put on patience. We have to be humble in this whole thing, in this whole interaction and experience. Everyone's got to be humble. How do we get there? How do we have that kind of humility to be able to bring something to somebody in love, to point out an error, and then how do we have the humility to receive it? Verses 15 and 16, the peace of Jesus and the word of Jesus. When the peace of Jesus rules our hearts and the word of Jesus dwells in us richly, we will be humble. I think one of the things that God is doing, I see this in my life, I see it in so many people's lives, over and over again is he's just trying to humble us. We are so prone to be prideful, to think way too highly of ourselves, and and God is just doing this thing where he's humbling us. Admonishment demands it, and it's so good for our lives. If God humbled himself, I think we can too, right? Philippians 2, it's a beautiful passage of the humility of Jesus Didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he gave it up. He humbled himself. If he can do it, we can do it. Okay, remember also, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. James 4, 6. So when you resist admonishment, when you defend, when you justify, when you refuse to listen to it, you are standing in opposition to God. That's bad news. You're standing in opposition to the one who spoke the world into existence. Lord, have mercy on us that we would not do that. Number three, admonishment demonstrates true love. Verse 12, put on compassionate hearts. Verse 14, above all, put on love, which binds us in harmony. One of the things that the Bible does to us when we live it, breathe it, read it, when it becomes the lens through which we see everything is that it corrects and purifies our definitions. And so in our world, it's possible to arrive at a definition of love which would sweep everything under the rug, that would sweep under the rug the areas of compromise and sin in the name of love. But scripture commands us and teaches us that that's not what love is. I love Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Have you been wounded by a friend in the best possible way? It is wounding. I don't want to make light of that. When my friends, when my wife, when they come to me and they point something out, it stings. It hurts, but it's so faithful. Yes, it's wounding, but it's also so faithful. It demonstrates a love and a commitment to me as a person that when I think about it, when I get past my own kind of emotional response, I land at the place of this is the most loving thing that they could do for me. You know me. You know every chance I get. I quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and so here's what he says about this very thing. Nothing can be more cruel than that leniency which abandons others to their sin. Nothing more cruel than that. Nothing can be more compassionate than that severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. When we allow nothing but God's word to stand between us, judging and helping, listen to this it is a service of mercy, an ultimate offer of genuine community. It's cruel to be lenient to sin. It's cruel. It runs entirely contrary to the work that God is trying to do in our lives to make us more like Jesus. And it's compassionate to give that as a gift to someone in love, in relationship, with humility. Number four, and Bonhoeffer gets to this at the end of his quote, admonishment is rooted in scripture let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. As the gospel gets down deeper inside of us, as the word of scripture gets down deeper inside of us, and we grow in love and in compassion, and we die to ourselves, and we think of other people, this will just happen. We will want to do this. Because the word of Christ will draw us into deep relationship, into deep friendship, and it will not be content with sin and disobedience. Right? Now, it's the word of Christ. We have to say this. We do not admonish over preferences. We do not admonish over gray areas. Okay, admonishment is not a justification for you to impose on everyone else your opinion or your interpretation about something that maybe people have have debated for 2,000 years. Okay? We are giving each other the wisdom of the revelation of God that we see in Scripture. So every time that we try to admon- that, that you try to admonish, I would encourage you to have Scripture in your hand and to have Scripture come out of your mouth. Number five, admonishment protects us from empty faith. Here's what I mean by that. In verse 16, did you notice it holds together teaching and admonishing? Let the word of Christ dwell, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Here's what we do today. We say things like, oh, this per- they believe, but they're just not living it. They're a Christian, but they're just not walking with God right now. And the New Testament has no understanding for that. It's just a matter of fact. Like, true belief, true belief, as Jesus understood it, as the earliest followers of Jesus understood it, would have had no division between what we believe and what we act. They would have been held together Because that's what true belief is. It has legs, it moves, it walks, it acts. So teaching and admonishing are held together because the teaching is what I'm doing. It's what we do for each other. We're learning. Our minds are receiving new information about who God is and what it means to be faithful, to walk with him. But the admonishing is how we're living it out. Admonishing is answering the question, are we being obedient to what we're learning? If all we ever did as a church was just teach, teach and teach and teach and teach and teach, we had no expectation that you all or that me would ever be obedient to it. No expectation that we would follow the things that we're learning. We just spewed out a bunch of knowledge. Do you know what we'd be doing? And I know this sounds harsh, but this is what we'd be doing. We would be heaping divine judgment upon you. Because the more you know and the less you respond the harsher the judgment. I don't want anything to do with that. As one of your pastors, and I speak on behalf of our whole staff team, we don't want anything to do with that. I know what the scripture says about me as a teacher, that the judgment will be more harsh for me. I don't want anything to do with heaping judgment upon you. Okay, so that's that. Number six, finally, admonishment ends in worship. Worship. Verse 16, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. Now, I think this is kind of funny because I'm imagining like how this would play out. So someone comes to you, a friend comes to you and says, hey, listen, I noticed this thing in your life. Like you, you're sinning here. I don't know if you know this, but what you're doing here is wrong. And let me show you why it's wrong. And you offer it right. We're going to do this in gentleness and meekness and humility and so you're telling them something still really hard. And then if you just read the passage at face value, it seems like then right after they totally like <laughs> shatter you with their words, you're like, all right, let's sing a couple songs together. Let's go ahead and start singing. Thank you for that. Thank you for pointing out my sin. Let's, let's have a little worship set. Um, it seems strange, except it's really not. And here's why. It, it, by the way, it doesn't have to happen immediately. That's not the idea, although if it does, that's cool. That'd be great. Um, I don't think that's what it's saying. It's not prescribing here's how it will look like each time you do it. But here's what I think Paul is saying, and this is the, the, the absolute wisdom and beauty of Scripture yet again. What he's saying is that when we do this for each other, in the end, we will worship. I think back of all the times that someone has come to me said a hard truth to me, admonished me. The end of that is I worship. When I get away, when I get alone, when I get honest with what happened, I am so thankful and it makes me want to worship God all over again. So here's why. Because we're rehearsing the gospel That's what we do as Christians. We rehearse the gospel over and over again every day of our life, right? So the gospel is, I'm needy, I'm desperate, on my own, I am fatally flawed, and I will not honor God. I need Jesus desperately. And when we admonish each other, we live that again. We come face to face with our need. We go to Jesus, and he loves to lavish his grace upon us but when we don't admonish, when we're not honest, when we don't go to our friends, we don't get that experience. Does that make sense? We miss that. We miss God lavishing us with his love. Remember earlier, I planted the seed of like the two camps of people, right? The people that are, you know, God would never want to do that, he's too loving, or I cannot wait to sink my teeth into this person. Here's the tragedy of either of those extremes. Because in both of them, there's no grace. There is no experience of the radical mercy and forgiveness and kindness of God. That's what we miss. It's sentimentality. It's brutality. But it doesn't matter. They both miss the grace of God. But when we do this for each other, we risk in relationship. And it is a landmine of emotion. We have to be delicate and do this right. But when we do it, it leads us to worship. We repent. We declare our need. And then we experience Not just talk about, but we experience Jesus washing us all over again, reminding us that he has already paid the penalty, that we are already seated with him in the heavenlies, that there is nothing that will keep us from him, that nothing will separate us from his love. See, I think to admonish each other is to revel in the extravagant grace of God. And when we don't do it, what we miss is the grace It'll only ever be a concept. We'll talk about grace. We'll be able to explain grace, but we will not have a story of actually needing it and receiving it and encountering God in it. See, there is no wrong in you for which Jesus has not atoned. The whole reason we can do this, this admonishing thing, is because there is nothing that Jesus has not already paid for. So to wrap up, just a few questions. Do you have anyone in your life who is asking you hard questions? Do you have anyone in your life who is speaking to your character? Anyone who has eyes on your relationships, on your, how you live, how you treat people? When is the last time someone lovingly pointed out sin compromise or foolishness in you? If you, if the answer is never or not in a really long time, then the takeaway is really simple. I challenge you, soon, don't delay. Go to someone and just express your need for that. Express your need for the kind of friendship where that can be happening. You know, I started with this question of like, how do we not become hypocrites, and when I think about our culture, the world sees us this way. It's just a matter of reality. We are seen as a bunch of hypocrites, and I know we want to get defensive. I know that we want to explain that away, but I wonder if we just need to reckon with its truthfulness, because we are, and I'm not saying, like, yeah, we will always fall short. We will never live up to the things that we sing when we gather here, right? That's For me, the worshipful part of singing is that I'm remembering that all the things I'm singing I don't actually live. And outside of the grace and the mercy of God, I'm hopeless. I'm not talking like that's, yeah, we're, we're, our lives will never match the words that we sing. That's not hypocrisy. That's humanity. I'm talking about when we say that we believe that Jesus is life, that the gospel is everything, it's the best news, and that being like Jesus is our mission and our purpose. And then we go out and we consistently choose Otherwise. This is why we need admonishment. This is why we need to challenge each other. It's intimidating, yes, but we desperately need it. Invest in deep friendships and invite challenge into your life. Invest in deep friendships and invite it. Go to someone, even this week, and say, I need this. I need you to speak in, I need you to challenge. Here's the secret, I didn't want to tell you earlier, Because the sermon would have gone one minute, okay? So here's the secret. As powerful as this is, this work of admonishing, and it can be a really powerful experience if we do it well, as the scriptures command us to do it. If we do it well, it's powerful, but as powerful as it is, it's really not the act of doing it that's powerful, not compared to the kind of friendship and relationship that it reveals. See, the true power of admonishing is that it reveals that we are living in deep community, that our lives are are gloriously intertwined with other people, that we're not doing this Christian thing alone, that we're desperate, we're humble, and we need each other. If we walk alongside each other, fight for each other, bear with one another, refuse to go it alone, if we cultivate gospel-centered, Jesus-centered friendships and we chase after him together, we will do this. And it won't be so much about I'm doing it because I got to do my admonished thing. It'll just be because we love the person so much that we we can't imagine not doing it. And so that's my prayer that we would be in that kind of relationship, that we would risk that we that you would take whatever that next step is that you need to take to declare your need for this, to start and to invest in those kind of relationships. We need this for our lives. We need this for this church. We need it for the sake of the world, which is so desperate for that kind of relationship. So let's pray and ask God to do it in our midst.